we're going to be talking all things cars, fast cars, touring cars, road cars, favourite cars. But let's start by talking about your very first cars. This, this van slammed his foot on the brakes again. So the, the driver, the unnamed driver, has got a bit of a temper problem. He dropped back 100 metres and just floored this NSX. Hit the back of this transit van, doing about 60 miles an hour more. Went submarined under the van. The van went up in the air, bounced sideways and this way, that way. I'll tell you how it was. everyone and welcome to Gridwalk Talk, the new podcast discussing all things Tintop, brought to you by Honda and Team Dynamics. I'm Louise Goodman, ITV's British Touring Car Championship reporter, and I'm joined by two of the stars of the series. It is, of course, Halford Juasha Racing's very own Matt Neal and Dan Kamish. Hello, Hi, Lou. guys. Hey, hey, how, how are, are we you doing? doing? How's lockdown life been for you both? How's it been for you, Dan? Um, yeah, pretty good actually. It's um, in a way, you know, as bad as it's been, and um, you know, I, what's going on out there is not, you know, terrible. But um, in my little bubble, um, being able to spend a bit more time at home, my girlfriend spent a lot more time at home. Um, you know, she works for the Formula E stuff, so she's not been flying away. So she's been home. We have a new home as well. So um, it's actually been quite nice to spend some time here. Actually, we've done a lot of work on the garden. We've done a lot of work on the house um so yeah it was it was it was good and it still is but i'll be honest i'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to normal especially as the pub you? the pubs are about to reopen so um is that birds yeah, i can hear tweeting in the background sounds very yeah. idyllic yeah i think it is yeah how about you matt how's homeschooling going um i i've loved it to be, i mean yeah it's it's terrible with everything that's gone on but my life is just chaos normally uh, and it has been chaos for a long long time years so um, I just go from one fire to the next one and, and uh, a bit of racing in between. And so being stuck at home for eight weeks, which was pretty much where we were, when it was getting serious. Um, okay, we were spoiled by the weather, but I, I loved it. I, I, I was working there in the background. I sort of set myself up a bit of, bit of a garage in the, a bit of an office in the garage. Um, but I enjoyed it. Uh, so awesome. Still getting a bit better from my shoulder. So it's bought me time on that. You know, it's been a, in that respect, a bit of a blessing in disguise for my shoulder injury I've got in January, but um, yeah, I've, I've loved every minute of it. Garden looking fabulous? It's all right. For the first time in I don't know how long, I did some gardening, which is a real, which very unusual for anybody who knows me. Not, I haven't got a big garden. I've got about a quarter or maybe even half an acre of the whole plot. And I get a, a gardener in once a week uh, for two hours and he, for about 20 quid and he mows the lawns and everything. So I've, I haven't got a lawnmower or anything like that, but I actually did, I had to buy a builder skip or, you know, get a builder skip in and I filled, filled it. So, uh, yeah, that was um, an, another good challenge for me. I've got into upcycling pallets and making garden furniture out of them. That's, that's, <laughs> that shut you both up, didn't it? Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's get on with the chat. I mean, probably like you guys, I can't wait to get the season going. But in the meantime, it's really, it's, it's nice. I've been missing everybody in the motorsport community. So it's really nice to be able to shoot the breeze a bit on this new podcast. Um, as we know, the BTCC is all about and for the fans. So we've invited them to get involved. So thanks to all of you who have sent in your comments and thoughts. I'm going to be putting some of those questions to you two guys later on. Um, 
Um, and we've got a special guest joining us too. He's a former BTCC champion who always has plenty to say. So I'm looking forward to that. So for this first episode, we're going to be talking all things cars, fast cars, touring cars, road cars, favorite cars. But let's start by talking about your very first cars. What was your very, very first car, Dan? My first car was a Hyundai Coupe that uh, was my mum's um, for a few years. Uh, it was a v, I think it was a V-Reg from memory. And um, it was passed down to me very kindly by her. It actually, the first modification I did, oh, I did one, uh, was actually I put some Team Dynamics Pro Race, I think there were 1.2 wheels on it. <laughs> um, so there you go. Our, my affiliation to Dynamics goes back quite a long way. Um, yeah, it was, it was great, actually, because I was the first one of my group of friends to actually pass my driving test. So... The school run that should have been five minutes took about an hour every morning and an hour every evening. And um, yeah, we used to shoot about the place. I had a, only had a tape player, but back then you could get like a little auxiliary lead that plugged actually into the tape deck. Um, so you could play your iPod and yeah, I, I loved it. We, we all had a good, you know, they were good times actually. What was yours, Matt? Well, it's funny that Dan says about his first, first wheels on his first car were Team Dynamics and the first bike I ever raced or a motocross bike was a CR250 Honda so this is this is the stars aligning we're all moving into where we need to where we're going to get this was this was all set out like 30 years ago well not 30 years but just about unless he had his car when he was one um mine was a 950 Ford Fiesta Popular Plus Maroon and um on the country I modified everything on it as much as you could but it was those days you know I was sort of it was the 80s for me and you know everyone remembers back about far 70s were big custom car era and it was still an overhang of, of that in the 80s and then went on to the 90s the max power days and so that was the sort of that's what you did and that's what that's what we all did and you know it had a my first car it had a manual choke which you know so you'd when you started it used to rev the nuts off it for, until you got enough confidence that it was gonna wasn't gonna stall at the traffic lights and then um, yeah, I did the clutch because I rode the clutch everywhere. I did the clutch in about nine months, which I think a lot of uh, learner drivers did in those days. Um, what, was the, what was the first car you ever actually drove? I remember sitting on my dad's knee in picnic areas in the New Forest and like doing the steering wheel bit on our um, Austin 1100. You don't, probably don't even know what an Austin 1100 is, yeah. Dan. Yeah, no, I, you, I know you do, Matt. <laughs> one, of, one, of my, one of my first memories, though, was um, my mum and dad went away on holiday. My sister was a bit older than me, so... We used to have someone to babysit us when my mum and dad went away on holiday. And when I was 13, my mum had a lovely um, BMW 3 Series, black with martini stripes all down the side. And uh, when I was 13, I nicked it and I went out for a drive in it. Went down the local town and I thought, right, I'm going to give it Billy Big Pants and get the back end out. And got the back end out, but then it flicked back on me and I went down the high street doing about two 360s completely crap myself and then didn't hit a thing luckily and drove it really slowly back home but um yeah i that bet you were a good brilliant. boy weren't you dan did you ever nick a car when you were 14 no i can't no. say i did I, I was i'm i'm too far the other way to be honest um no my first experience i think it was actually for, for, i don't i can't remember fully but i, I do have my first proper memory of it was um was actually the morning of, of my first lesson I think I was 17 and I my dad took me out in his uh, he had a BMW 3 Series at the time from work it was a diesel manual 
and I must have stopped, no joke, I must have stalled it 40 times on the trot. And I do mean like restarted it, stalled, restarted it, stalled, restarted it, stalled. And then we're getting so annoyed. And um, I don't know why I couldn't figure it out. And, and I, I presume it's my dad's teaching was shocking or something. Um, but yeah, it weird. It was just, um, I just couldn't get it, just couldn't figure it. And then um, it clicked and that was it. I was off. But I do remember struggling so much to get that car to move in, in the beginning. But that was your first drive lesson. Did you never drive around a car park or something like that as a kid? Never, never. I probably did. Not not really from memory. Um, I I don't. I don't really remember ever. Ever do no. I mean, I, I I used to obviously I was go karting a lot back then. Um, Spent all my weekends in a go kart, but no, I don't remember ever really trying to drive the car. Maybe I never really had anywhere to drive the car. You know, I never. you know, we always lived in a, in a, in a town, of, you know, so built up area, no way you could sort of get away with, but then again, Matt, Matt, Matt went down the high street, so maybe I don't have an excuse. <laughs> I suppose if you were hooning around a racetrack on a go-kart every weekend, you didn't have the same urge as I didn't. I didn't myself actually. and Matt, who never went karting when we were kids. Or did you, Matt? Did you kart when you were a kid? No, I had fun karts. I mean, my first driving the car, we had a, to get to my mum and dad's house, it's about a hundred yards off the road. And when I was about seven or eight, my mum used to, she used to pull off the road and then sit me on her lap and I could steer the car and she would do the pedals and she would let me drive that up round to, round to the house and I thought that was really cool. So they, my mum and dad still live at that house today. So when, when the boys were young, um, I used to do that with them as well. It was sort of a bit of deja vu getting older. But karting, no. Um, no, that wasn't for me. I was, I was a late starter in life. I was two wheels more so. I, my big thing when I was a kid, as soon as I could touch the pedals, is when my dad got home from work, I was allowed to park the car in the, uh, in the garage. Yay, loved it. <laughs> All like six feet or whatever that I moved it. What's the favourite car that you've ever owned? Dan? Um, favourite car? I haven't owned that many, to be fair. My, my list's relatively short. Um, well, because you get them all free. Yeah, now, now, yeah, you know, Honda Civic Type R, of course. Um, but no, joking aside, the Honda Civic Type R probably is, you know, the, the best and favourite car I've ever owned. Because um, that's just where I am in life, you know, I just haven't had that many yet. Um, it, and, it, and it's a great car anyway. So. Oh, go. Oh. Livy just throwing her Livy's lunch across the, the room. Yeah, that was, uh, that was her throwing her lunch across the room. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's probably, I've had. Um, I had a Hyundai uh, i30N before my, my Honda, which was uh, a bit of a rival to the Type R. That was really good fun. Um, very similar car, actually, but um, a, bit more, a bit more loud, a bit more boy racery, which was kind of good fun on the road. Uh, if you could say that about the Type R with its big wings, but there is another car out there like that. Um, yeah, and that, that's, that's really about it. I can't say I've had a, an extensive history. Matt, you've had more time to have an extensive history. Yeah, yeah, but I think when I was younger, I was really good at saving money. I used to work, I started work at 17 and I was really good you at saving money. You mean you were tight? Not, no, I wasn't, but I just, because I still lived at home, I was good at saving money and not now, now. money doesn't stay in my pocket for five seconds. Um, but I saved up enough cash and I think when I was about 20 or 21, I bought an E30, um, BMW M3 limited edition, uh, Roberto Ravaglia limited edition, which is a homage to one of the DTM cars they were running back then, bright red, and that was a terrific car. I sold it too cheap when I sold it because I had it for about 18 months, two years, and then if I'd held on to it now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But um, 
that's probably quite a special car. And it was a bit surreal for me that probably how many years after that would it be? Ten years after that, I'd end up racing against Roberto in 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 British touring cars and the rest of it. So yeah, it was a proper beast that car. What did you like about it? Um, just for its day, it was it was out there. I mean, it was nothing like the performance of modern cars or you know anywhere near the performance of modern cars or the handling wise. But it was just a it was a, a an homologation special back in the old. Group N, Group A days, where you know the RS 500s, they were all made, and the Group B rally cars. It was a, a, a homologation special where they got to make the manufacturer got to make 500 of them to allow them to race them. Um, it was just different, and it was. I think it's been a bit of an iconic car in its time. So, um, but that's history. Yeah, we're on to. I like the modern stuff. Yeah, the next gen. I get excited about what we're having next. Really. How did you get your hands on it? Bearing in mind it was such a limited run of them. Uh, a mate of mine, you know, I've got a few mates in the car trades, you know, the youngsters, and, and it just came up through the trade, and they said, do you want it? And I sort of got a bit of cash, and I managed to borrow a bit more, and, and you know, a bit more than that, and then I sort of went and bought it, and I didn't really want to drive it to start with. I was too scared that I didn't want to scratch it, because <laughs> it's left-hand drive. I've never driven a left-hand drive before, um, so, but uh, you soon get used to it. What about favourite cars that you've driven that you've never actually owned? You must have, well, I know, Dan, you had some nice Porsches from Porsche back in the day, didn't you, when you were racing in their championship? Yeah, I did. I was, um, yeah, ne never quite owned, but yeah, luckily enough to have uh, a Porsche for a year back at the, at the end of 16, for, uh, throughout the whole of 2017, I had a uh, brand new 911 uh, Carrera, which was, which was great. Kind of spoils you, really, when you have a have that sort of car. Um, it was, I think the list price of that car, bear in mind, it was just, it was a base 911. Uh, it was £92,000 from memory, which is, it had every option you could possibly put onto it, I think, because um, obviously they went to sell it afterwards, I presume, through the trade, and it was just brilliant. It was such a fantastic all-round car. Um, looked great, went great, and um, and it's a Porsche, so it never it was never going to give you any trouble. So, yeah, that was, it was cool to have. Um, cool to have that for a while. They also let me a GT3 for a week, which was very special. Um, yeah, that's an amazing bit of kit, the GT3. Um, feels just like the race car, except you're on the road, which makes it even more dramatic, I find. I think it's I think it's just such a special bit of kit. Um, and Honda, to be fair, have lent me a couple of cars. They've, I've had the, the new NSX, which was um, a bit like a time machine, really. You put your foot down and suddenly it all, it's like that bit in Star Wars when it all sort of glows and um, it's like time stands stand still. It, it, the way that goes off the line is incredible. Uh, really, really fast car. Very cool car, especially when you can just cruise around on the electric. Uh, and I, I, they also went with the older NSX from, uh, I think, either the 2005 one, um, which was really special in its own way, actually. Very, very, very cool, natural aspiration and all that. So, yeah, I've, I've driven, some, tri driven some cool cars. Um, it's a shame my bank balance doesn't let me buy some cool cars, but um, I'm working on that. I've driven the NSX a few times. A mate of mine back in the day when I was working in Formula One was the PR guy for Honda. And part of his responsibility was Honda would always give the, each of the drivers, which was Senna and Berger at the time, an NSX to use at the circuits. And my mate, Eric Silberman, part of his responsibility was driving them back to the airport afterwards or back to wherever they'd been picked up from because the drivers would all fly off in their helicopters and stuff. So, so yeah, I've zoomed up a few autobahns in uh, with my, with my butt where Ed and Senna's butt was a few hours previously. It's a lovely car. You must have driven a few NSXs, haven't you, Matt? 
Yeah, I've driven a few. There's, I can remember b before I, I came over to Honda, there was one of the Honda drivers back in Super Touring days in the 90s, because all the, the works drivers then, they got NSXs as their company cars. And one who, I, who will remain unnamed um, go on, was, going down, go on. was going down one of the motorways in the UK um, early in the morning trying to get to the airport and uh, in on a, a dual track because the motorway was only two lanes at that point, came up behind a, um, a white van doing 55 mile an hour trying to overtake a truck. So he sort of sat there for 30 seconds a minute, flashed his lights and this truck just brake checked him, slammed his foot on the brakes. So he thought that was a bit uncalled for. So he waited again for another minute, gave him another flash. This this van slammed his foot on the brakes again. So the, the driver, the unnamed driver, has got a bit of a temper problem. He dropped back 100 meters and just floored this NSX. Hit the back of this transit van doing about 60 miles an hour more. Went submarined under the van. The van went up in the air, bounced sideways and this way, that way. I'll tell you afterwards who it was. Anyway, then you realize. I'm going to go to jail for this. So then, because it was early in the morning, it was it was it was a bit dark. Turned off all his headlights and did 150 mile an hour up the hard shoulder trying to get. To it the just keeps there. getting worse. This story. Having the liaison at Honda going, uh, I've got a bit of a problem. So and he got demoted to not a Type R after that, but a base Civic for the rest of the season. <laughs> Never got his NSX back, and had to pay for the damage as well. How much did it cost him? I don't know, no, but he didn't go to jail, which is, um, you know, keeping your glass half full and the positives. So um, I'd say he got off light there. He got off very light. <laughs> he got there. off light as well. I think this is a, a good time to bring in our special guest because he's driven a few cars in his time. He's competed in autocross, hill climbs and rallies back in the 70s. Um, but he's best known for his antics in the BTCC, both on and off the track. Um, that includes his championship victories in 1989 and 95, and especially his almost victory in 1992. A welcome to the touring car legend that is John Clellans. Hey, how are we all doing? Yay! That Everyone deserves a round of applause. Hi, John, how are you? Hey. Yeah. Now we're talking about road rage. Here comes the master. <laughs> oh, I don't know, unfair. <laughs> I haven't punched too many people on the main road. I usually keep that for the track. <laughs> what was the first car you ever drove? Oh, my father was a Triumph dealer, so I had a Triumph Herald, which had these ridiculous... Um, little rear wheels that moved out and in and the only way you could get it to handle was i put a curbstone in the boot which kept the bike wheels on the ground it slowed the car down but it kept the bike wheels on the ground and that was the very first car that i i ever drove and it was the very first car i ever competed in i did an auto test with it um but it was a piece of shit to drive it was terrible i was going to say i love those cars my grandparents had one i thought it was absolutely beautiful <laughs> i never well, knew it was a piece of sh1 yeah exactly, Is it really exactly. That bad? <laughs> what about your favourite car, John? Um, I'd say my favourite car, it certainly wasn't a Vectra, because I was never really keen on those when I raced them, but uh, probably a Porsche. I've got a 911T at the moment, which I really enjoy, and um, I think the Porsche is probably the one car I've ever, I park it, lock it, walk away from it and turn and look back at it, and, and I've very seldom ever done that with a road car. So I, I, I love my Porsche. Why? What is it about it? Uh, they just they do everything right uh, and this is coming from a Volvo dealer I mean I enjoy driving Volvos but uh, the Porsche was great I mean it just does absolutely everything when you want it and it doesn't scare you in the process so no love it 
Right, next question, money, no object for all three of you. What would be your absolute dream car? Matt, what would you just love to see sitting in your garage? Oh, man, um, that is a very good question. Um, Phil Crossman, who uh, was head of um, Honda a few years ago, asked me and Flash exactly the same question. And it's hard because you've driven a lot of supercars, you've owned a lot of supercars, and we've, we've been spoiled because we get performance week in, week out. And we both went for comfort because he said, if you could have a car free of charge, and, but you've got to drive it every day for the rest of your life, what would you have? And we both went for, I won't tell you what we, we went for, but we both went for comfort. And he goes, really? You, you know, you'd rather have that than a McLaren or an NSX? Or he went, yeah, because you can't throw your kit bags in the back and your bikes and all this. You can't do that with a supercar. But supercars are lovely if you've got low, you know, spare brass and, and you know, you time to go and enjoy it at the weekends but an everyday car I'm, I'm maybe that's just showing my age well i was going to say but dan please tell me you are not at your age thinking about comfort like matt is what's your dream car um well speaking of comfort my daily driver at the moment is a honda crv so uh i am very much in, in the comfort camp um so for that reason as i have the daily covered yeah i would definitely have a have a supercar of, of some description um Money no object, probably a Ferrari. Um, I think that's still the the brand that you know people aspire to own, um, and they're very good at it. Probably, probably a you know a four five eight Speciale or something. So, something, something without a turbo, something naturally aspirated, um, so it can rev Why? all the way. Just so it can rev all the way to nine thousand on the road. You know, that's. I just I love engines that rev. Um, you know, I think so they can that, show off properly. I don't know. I think it probably stems from. My last few years of karting, I was in um, Formula A, which was basically the highest level of karting in the UK. And the engines in that used to rev beyond 20,000, so close to sort of 21,000 RPM at times. And yeah, that's quite, a, it gives you quite a buzz when you've got that kind of, um, you know, that kind of racket going on. So yeah, it probably stems from that, really. What's yours, John? Um, well, I've owned lots of, of cars, lots of old classic cars and things as well. And I, I, I think for me that, the trouble with these old classic cars is they drop oil everywhere, they're uncomfortable, they don't have brakes, they generally don't have air conditioning and all that sort of stuff. And I've owned some lovely things like Aston Martins and whatnot, but for me, I think I would have a Ford GT. I've always loved a GT40, and for now, the more modern one, the Ford GT. I know it's a bit boring, but I think I'd have one of them because I think I could drive it every day, and I could uh, probably get some speed up on it up here as well so yeah I, I think that would be for me do you know the one that i want and I've, I've, I've never driven one i've only seen a couple of well there aren't that many around it's a gordon keeble all right i remember them What's that? do you have you ever driven one never heard of it no have you not it probably falls in the category of something that would break down you'd have to be a member of the rat to get you home uh no nah, do you know what you, you, i you, would dispute that because they only ever made 99, and I think most of them are still on the road. And bearing in mind it's a car that was made in the 1960s, that's not bad going. You need to get your eyes tested. They're not the prettiest thing in the world. <laughs> I just, there's something, I love the story behind them. It was a fantastic sort of 1960s Actually, brand that was... if I had to go for one car, if I had to say, probably if I fit in it, it would be a DB5 Aston. Yeah. Well, I, I, James Bond, the, yeah. the jock thing, like with JC and all that, you know, the, the Sean Connery bit, they're, they're pretty cool. Yeah, but you, you say that, but I, I owned a DB6 Vantage manual thing. Um, I bought it a few years ago, 
I got in it one Sunday with my wife to go and have lunch with some friends about 60 miles away. I was five miles down the road thinking, what am I doing driving this old piece of junk? And it was about, I don't know, it was a £350,000 car, but it was just an old, an old bomber that <laughs> itself and threw oil in <laughs> never, never meet your heroes, that's what they say, isn't it? John, <laughs> you're a prestigious British brand, you're slagging. <laughs> yeah, John, you'll relate to this. It's like when we go and race at Goodwood Revival, and the first time I went down there, and they asked, I got a, a, an invitation to, to drive a Lister Le Mans Sunbeam Tiger. Yeah. Went down there to test it, and it's a little bit damp. And I'm going down the straight, and this thing just wants to go any direction except straight on at horrifically fast speed. And I actually thought, what am I doing here? What am I, why am I sat in this? What am I, because it is such an old, as you say, an old bomber. Yeah. And then I looked across as I'm going down the straight towards Woodcote at about 150 mile an hour. And there's a Spitfire coming in to land next to me. I thought, that's why I'm doing it. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and are there any cars that you wish you'd had the opportunity to drive but never have done? Dan? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, not, not, well, yeah, actually, I'm saying no, yeah, of course there is. Um, my memory's not, not what it, what, not what it needs to be. Um, I did have the opportunity to drive, um, the McLaren, uh, Honda MP44 that was Senna's car from, um, at Goodwood, uh, last year. Uh, and I, I didn't fit. Which was a bit of a shame. Um, in fact, I did it. I wasn't even close to fitting in it. It was. Um, I wouldn't have done anything to drive that car. Um, even Is contemplating. Frost car, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> I would have done anything to drive it. Even contemplated sort of removing parts of my anatomy. But even if I chopped my legs off at the knee, I, I think I still wouldn't have fit. It was. Um, it was so small in, in terms of the cockpit size, um, and I'm all leg. I know, like you know, Matt's a little bit taller than me, but actually. He's probably a bit more 50-50. I'm like 80% leg, 20, 10, like 20% body, um, which makes it very difficult, really. So, yeah, that was a bit of a shame to have that opportunity to, to drive something so special and then to kind of find out you're never going to fit. And, and to be fair, even when I did think single-seaters in the modern day, uh, it was always a squeeze to get me in. Uh, it was always uncomfortable. Um, so it wasn't really a surprise when it, when it sort of turned out that I couldn't fit. So, yeah, that was a bit of a shame. Um, but yeah, hopefully, if I ever get a chance again, hopefully I'll be, uh, it'll be a bit, something a bit more modern with a bit more room. I really felt for you then because I went down and filmed, did some filming with the car afterwards and you'd been there just before me trying to squeeze yourself in. And I think you were supposed to go out for lunch with everybody afterwards and you just kind of left looking very, did you go off and have a cry? I think I No, no, they, 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 I went, um bizarrely my my girlfriend is actually from from Bracknell which is which is where Honda UK base is so I didn't know that at the time when I met her but it just kind of transpired so I was only around the corner anyway that day so I was with her and uh, so I popped in to, to see the car which was great just to see it and, and see all the guys that came with it and it's very special um, and I sat in it and literally my my bum was basically against the the, the back you know without a seat in it it's just a bare shell uh and my feet were flush straight against all the pedals and there was the pedals were already as far away as they could possibly get um and i just couldn't move the steering wheel wouldn't even go on because my legs were such an angle um that you wouldn't even get the steering wheel on so 
yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a shame, but like I said, to be honest, I kind of knew it was a long shot. But when someone says, "Would you like to drive this car?" you just say yes, and you deal with it. You 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 um, you try everything. But unfortunately, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and I don't think they actually had a replacement really for me. I think to give you an idea, Takuma Sato drove it on the Sunday at Goodwood. Bit of a height difference, I think, between me and Takuma Sato. So just a um, touch, yeah. What about you, Matt? I think one of my regrets in if, if I finish my race career, which I probably will at some point, will will never be doing Le Mans. And Le Mans, the magic times for me were the old Group C days. Um, you know, the full full bananas, real raw speed when with the open um, no chicanes on the Mulsan straight. Uh, they would have been fabulous to do it. I don't know whether John ever ran it. I know Tim Harvey was he raced with Spice then. Um, those would have, those have been pretty special driving. It'll be a regret that I've I've not done it because it's such an iconic. It's one of those iconic races, isn't it? But um, is that know. about the race though, or is that about the cars? Well, I think the car as well. You know, the, the cars were just raw. I remember going to um, getting in, trying to get in them. Uh, you know, to to try them out. Um, I remember when Tom's Toyota got disbanded in Norfolk, and a lot of the hardware just disappeared no one knew where it went and some had gone back to japan and everything and i was out seeing a, um, a guy who bought some a bit of a wheeler dealer in taiwan and he got a little bit of a shop out there and i walked into this shop and there's one of the original tom's le mans uh c1 cars with all the chassis plates on it and everything i went that's where it's gone and suddenly it appeared on the other side of the world and this guy bought a cash out the back door of tom's so uh yeah but um, I think one of those things, just because, I don't know, I think they were iconic in their time. Yeah, and funny, I wonder his pocket that, that cash went into. Yeah. Funny you say that, Matt, that's exactly, I, I did an interview recently with Motorsport Magazine, and that was the one regret I had. I was offered a drive with Audi to, to partner Frank Bieler in 1996. And no. I, I'd done uh, a two-year deal with Vauxhall and didn't take the, the, the second-year deal with, uh, with Audi which I regret immensely because it never occurred to me to ever go to Le Mans because, as you say, Tim Harvey, Steve Soper, Jeff Allen, what, you know, David Leslie, all these guys went and did Le Mans. And it never occurred to me about it. I just never thought about it. And I went there two years ago to do the classic and I walked around it on the Friday evening and then I was driving this old E-Type and for a lap and a half before it threw its guts out all over the pavement at, uh, at Indianapolis, it was the most fantastic place I've ever been at. And to have done Le Mans in a silk-cut Jaguar, for me, that would have been the car, and that's the one car I would love to drive. There's just something about it, there's something about the atmosphere, and particularly now, obviously, with the, with the chicanes, but back in those days, to drive it, with no chicanes in a 250 mile an hour sports car must have been terrifying. Yeah. Ah, so I'm, I'm with you. So if you ever feel like we should team up and do classic <laughs> long in a C2 car or a C1 car, I will be there. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay to watch that actually. Definitely yeah. pay to watch really that. The only trouble is, is there's very slight height difference between the two well, of us. John, I'll, I'll put the feelers out one with a wide seat and a long pedal box. <laughs> we'll see where we get to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Let me bring in, we got some fans. We asked the fans if they had any questions that they wanted to ask. So let me bring some of those. So Lee on Facebook um, wanted to know, how do you guys feel about the, the hybrid coming to the BTCC? So obviously that's going to be, be, be tested um, this year um, and will be on all of the cards from, from 2021. First championship actually to, you know, to, to bring that in, aren't we? So ticking the box for, for BTCC. Yeah, it's... Um... Uh, from from my side, I don't know too much about it. Matt will know far more than me. Uh, I don't know much about how it's going to be implemented at the moment. Is it, is it going to be used as a, you know, the electrical side? Will it just be pushed to pass? Will it be used throughout the lap at different points? I have no idea about any of that. Uh, I think we actually see it uh, pretty soon. We see. I think it's going to run at the tyre test, which we'll be testing at soon. So, you know, that'll be a chance to get a little bit more information. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy with it, you know, the, the hybrid, but I, I, I don't, I don't want it to go any further than that. You know, I think hybrid where, you know, electric complements, uh, the petrol engine. Great. I don't really want to go to full electric. It's, um, not for me. Yeah. I think, I think uh, <clears throat> there are electric championships out there and again, they don't do it for me. It's the, I don't know it's the no noise thing or they're just, I think they're very, they're very strategic, very clever the way they do it. Um, they're on shorter circuits at the moment um, to make the racing look good. They're not, they're not there with the performance of the cars in comparison to an internal combustion engine yet. So hybrid, in touring car terms, we will be the first championship that does it. And I, along with a few others, was resistant to start with, a bit of it for the cost, because there's a cost implication of development and going that route. But... When I actually sat back and thought about it, I actually I got quite excited. The same way as, you know, you jump in a modern NSX, which is a, it's a hybrid with all its electric motors and and regen systems, and I find that extremely exciting. And the prospect of of where we go with it and how you use it, and it'll it means the drivers have got to use their brain a bit more rather than just flat out sort of because it, it's going to be the idea of it is going to be sort of a push to pass so you do regen some of it you will start with the charge but you'll regen as you're going around and you'll get so many bursts and they're on about even re reducing the weight or actually getting rid of the weight penalty system which they use and have used probably the last 20 years and then doing it in a hybrid form so the guy who's leading the championship will get less hybrid assistance on his you know, push to passes than the guys who are outside the top 10 and pro Archer down, which again brings in new strategies you've got to learn and how you're going to use it. And it means it, you know, as a driver, you've really got to think more. What do you think about it, John? I mean, you're, you're in the automotive industry, so you, you sell cars. Obviously, you're maybe not at the forefront, but very much involved in um, hybrids and electrics coming into motoring, let alone motorsport. What do you think about it in motorsport? I, I'm in two minds. I mean, my head says, obviously, we've got to go this way, but my heart says, I want to smell it and I want to hear it. Well, funny you say that. That We are, I mean, for instance, we are tasked now from a global uh, environmental point of view to sell 25% of everything has to be a, a hybrid. Now, I'm a bit like you. I... I I got involved in motorsport because of the smell and the sound. And there was nothing better for me than standing at Silverstone on the club circuit when the Formula One guys were testing on the south circuit and you could hear a, a V8, V10, V12, whatever it was. And it's just something about an engine like that. We have to go that way. Hybrid is unfortunately the future in, in many respects. But really, as a purist, I need to hear it. I need to smell it. And... Um, 
I don't know how you get around that problem. We're stuck with it. We're yeah, going I'm that way. Yeah, I'm the same. The smell of the Castrol R, because I started off on motocross bikes with two-stroke engines, and the smell of the Castrol R and the, the noise and the high revving. There's, there's, here's an interesting stat for you. My, my mother was born um, very late in life for her parents. Uh, she had three older brothers in her 20s when she was born. And so my grandfather on my mother's side was born in 1885, my grandfather. Now, you think about it. There's no cars, no bikes, no planes. You know, it's horse and carts. And if you, you want to go to Australia, you get on your boat. If you're lucky, you get there six weeks later. And then, if not my children, but my grandchildren, will more than likely see the demise of the internal combustion engine. So when you look at the greater scheme of population, of life and everything, there's less than a century where we've had that noise, that smell and everything. And I always thought, how lucky are we to live in that era? You know, where we burn the fossil fuels of the world. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I, I, this whole situation at the moment that we've all gone through in the last three months, um, or if you take it back to December, this whole COVID situation has put a completely different view on the way people travel, the way people drive. Um, we, everybody will be doing what we are doing today. You're, you're, you're on a Zoom call. You won't get on a plane and fly somewhere. And, you know, we're going to use cars less. So maybe the environment will improve a little bit anyway without having to go all that fully electric way. But mm -hmm. I, I, I'm driving a hybrid myself. And honestly, I get in it in the morning. I've got to give myself a slap to make sure it's running because it doesn't sound like it's running. You know, I'm not sure. Mm. Just changing tack a bit, Matt, this one is directed specifically to you because okay. it's from uh, Roger on Facebook. It wasn't on purpose. <laughs> it's funny you say that because let me tell you the story um roger was obviously there at the time he said get matt to tell you about the time when he did the silverstone night race you had a heavy crash in practice and the car was wrecked but the team managed to get their hands on an old car that had been sold and was stored in a chicken shed nearby and they had to rip it for all the spares to put your car back together would you like to tell us that story? It's got a good memory. Now, there is a little bit of a story there. The, the race we won in 99, the first race, the big win, the cash, you know, the 250,000 pound, we could never afford to buy the car back then. So we used to rent it off um, and lease it off, off Nissan Motorsport Europe. And at the end of the year, we tried to buy it because we used to upgrade. We always used to be 12 months behind, you know, the, the factory cars. At the end of the year, we tried to buy it, but uh, they just wanted too much money for it and we couldn't afford it because we were going into the other car. And so in the end, they sold it to a, a, a car collector who had a collection down in Evesham somewhere in a barn with chickens and everything. And he had old DTM cars, RS500. He had a mega collection. And it sat there for I don't know, a few years. I crashed, you know, the year afterwards. And we rang, literally rang him up because the car wasn't repairable overnight. And we borrowed it for the race the next day. And anyway, this guy subsequently got busted for VAT evasion, I think, and the HMRC. So he fled. He jumped on a plane and fled to, to Greece because apparently they can't extradite you from Greece. And, but left his car collection. So we, we were lining up. I was going to try and get this car back for a, for a song. And about three days before the auction, the whole thing got bought out by a, a car dealer in New Zealand. Couldn't get them couldn't communicate so that they all get shipped to New Zealand. But this car is iconic. So I then went, went to, um, I managed to track them, track the car down, which had been sold on to someone else. And remember that those super touring, the last generation super touring cars, they were up to half a million pounds each to build. 
And this guy, I tracked it down. I said, do you want to sell the car? And he says, yeah, I'll sell the car. And he wanted 22 grand for it. And at the time, I was absolutely skint in life. You know, I just got separated. I lost my house. I actually thought, do I need it? I need to get on a plane and go and look at it. And then I've got to ship it back. And I thought, it's not something I need. And I walked away. And then I got, a, I got another drive and did start doing better. A couple of years later, I rang the guy back up and I said, do you want to sell it? He goes, oh, no, I've sold it now. It's now in Malaysia. I went, oh. So then I tracked it down again. And then the guy said, yeah, I now want 50 grand for it. And then I'm arguing with him and then went back to him again about another two years later. He says, no, I don't want to sell it anymore. It's still sat in Malaysia. So that car is still, is still around. In fact, he's still got my last two, two uh, Nissans out there. Ducky bloke. I went on a bit long there. <laughs> That's all right. We'll edit it out. <laughs> no, it's a good story. It's good to hear it. John, you you drove. You got to drive those cars back in the day. What were they like? Uh, a Supertura was just a, an amazing car. I mean, the Nissans were a bit of a pain in the neck because the Malik organisation that put them together, Ray had a you know pretty good uh, eye for for detail and made sure that they had. You know, the, the cars were very very good and. As Matt said, I mean, the Vectra, I bought back my old Vectra, uh, which was in a 97 car. And we rebuilt it here. And I remember we did a backup to the British Touring Cars at Donington, at um, Rockingham. And Ian Harrison from Triple Eight came over and looked at it. And he said, oh, listen, this, this car's looking fantastic. It's looking better than it did when we built it. Do you know how much we charged Vauxhall for this at the time? And they sent Vauxhall a bill for £398,000. For, for this Vectra uh, back in 1997. So as Matt says, they were not cheap cars. They had more carbon fiber than the moon shuttle had, and they were really complicated things. And now you've got guys that go out and give 50 or 100 grand for them, drive them thinking they're going really well, and they say, oh, it's great to drive. Well, actually, you're not driving it hard enough because if you feel it's great to drive, you're only driving it at seven tenths, and Matt will, you know, he'll confirm this. If you were driving it at ten tenths, it was one bitch of a thing. It was always trying to bite you and throw you off the road. They were never comfortable, Matt, were they? No, no. And, and uh, the other thing, John, if you remember, was back in the day there was a, there was a tire war in the nineties. Now we have it was one tire for all. But then you know we got to a point. It was about ninety six, ninety seven, where we were allowed to use qualifiers. Yeah. And they were just unreal you've got one lap and yeah. as much grip as you could manage and they would go on tell them about those john because those are just unbelievable i mean i i ran dunlops in fact it's it's a very small incestuous business this and, and you should really be careful what you say because it will come back around and bite you and i remember in i can't remember whether it was 92 or whatever year it was but we had qualifying dunlops and i was on pole virtually at every occasion and matt said you got one lap out of them and you could not get a lap and a half. If you screwed up the lap, that was it. They were junk. And I lost the championship uh, because the tires during the race fell apart a little. And I told the guy from Dunlop to politely put them where the sun doesn't shine. And um, <clears throat> we then went to Yokohama the following year. And I remember being down in Australia in about 95 doing the Bathurst 1000. And the team were on Yokohama's and I said, no, you really need to be in Dunlop's. That's the thing. Come on, I'll, I know the guy from Dunlop. So we'll go down to see him. So I go to the Dunlop guy. It just happens to be the man from the UK that's down there at Bathurst. 
And he said, well, there's only one thing. If we sell you Dunlops for this race, you need to sign a disclaimer that says you'll not tell them to shove them up our arse, which was exactly what I told them to do with the tires. But, <laughs> you know, the, the, in those days, as Matt said, you had Yokohama, you had Michelin, and you had Dunlop. And they all had a strength and a weakness at a different point during a race. And, and that's what made the racing so good in those days. It wasn't just all falling off a cliff at the one time. You remember that, Matt? It was, it was just interesting with different tyres on board. Yeah, or if you were really unlucky, you had Pirelli's, which always fell off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> you must all have driven some pretty special cars out, outside of touring cars. What, are there any favourites? I know, well, Dan, what's your favourite? Because you've driven a whole, you've raced a whole load of cars, haven't you? Probably more uh, than that for sure. Yeah, I've, I've, I've raced a few different things. Um, driven a few different things as well in testing. Um, in form, Formula-wise, I, I got up to, I competed in Renault and then I did test Formula 3 a couple of times, which um, it's a, quite an amazing experience, actually. Like the first time I drove a Formula 3 car, um, no matter how many people, how many, you know, when people tell you about downforce and how it, how it works and what to expect. Nothing prepares you for the first time. You really throw it into a corner and it and it goes round. And you sort of have to have this moment of how on earth has it just done that? And then you realise that you're actually nowhere near the limit of it doing that. And um, you just got to keep building up and believing that the faster you go, the harder it grips. And it's incredible. You know, when you <coughs> corners now that I have to break and downshift twice for, you know, in a Formula 3 car are flat out. And that's... Um, take some thinking about really. Uh, I did a bit of Formula 2 as well, so even faster, which was, um, I think at the time, which was 2012, I did a lap around, I went to Barcelona for the test, I think I did a 137, which at the time would have put me about seven seconds off the back of the Formula 1 grid, so I was quite happy with that. Um, other than that, what else have I driven? Porsches, obviously they're great, uh, done a lot in the Porsche type stuff. I drove a V8 as well, I, I drove a V8 supercar in Australia. Um, on a one-off, which was uh, just a test, but very, very cool. I remember just spinning the wheels up in like fourth gear in a straight line, thinking, "My God, this is um, this has got some power." But yeah, so lots of good experiences. Have you driven? How many single seaters have you driven, Matt? Have they ever found one that you can fit into? Uh, I've driven a few, but not not racing-wise. I haven't raced them. I've just played in them and tested them a few occasions. I had to go in um, back in the day and Justin Bell's Formula Vauxhall, I think it was back then at Goodwood. Um, but, but nobody told me that the, I was going to say the gearbox is upside down. It's not, what do you call it? Do you know what I mean? Instead of like shifting up into third, you shift down into third. So I basically, between that, not knowing how to use the gears and the fact that my helmet was a bit big. So I either had to kind of go with my, with my head down and look up so I could see where I was going. Or if I had my head up and it was pulling back and I was kind of looking down, to, suffice to say, um, it wasn't spectacular. So, are you saying, Louise, that you don't know how a sequential gearbox works? What? Well, uh, I didn't. I'll get you out of that. Get me out of this, John. Get me out of this. I only say that, Louise, because you pulled me up on that at um, Goodwood in 2018, <laughs> if you remember. There's another story there. The Honda brought over for Goodwood Festival of Speed um, uh, John Surtees Formula One car, and uh, I think. They got one of the McLaren test drivers, which I think it was someone like Stoffel Van Dorn, into McLaren had supplied him. And uh, they, they're all serious, they all the Japanese around you, and they do a seat fit. 
and he gets in the car and he goes, yeah, 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 move the pedals here, move the pedal. He goes, uh, what's this lever on my right? And they went, that's the gear stick. <laughs> and one of the Japs went, get him out now, get him out. And they wouldn't let him drive the car, they got Stuart Graham to drive <laughs> Can I just say, Dad, it wasn't a sequential gearbox. It was. <laughs> help me out with this one, Matt. And John, you'll probably remember. It, on the single seaters back then, rather than starting the car up at the top of the van, it was H. Thank you. That's the phrase yeah. I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, it was H pattern. So it, ah, I was just okay. trying to pull down into fourth, and I should have been pushing up into fourth. Ah, okay. my, experience, my experience with single seaters was I, I did a, a Formula 3000 test, really for a magazine, for Autosport magazine at um, Snesserton. And then I've done a couple of hill climbs and a pill beam. But my, my best experience in a single seater was we had a Vauxhall day at Donington, where we had the directors of Vauxhall and we were taking them around in race cars. They were out in little Astras that they used to lend the Jim Russell race school. They also had a couple uh, or fleet of um, Vauxhall Lotus uh, cars there that day. And at some stage, they wouldn't let everybody out together in these. So Jeff Allen was my teammate at the time. And they said, no, 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 you've got to be 30 seconds apart from each other. So I went out first in this thing. Jeff came out 30 seconds after me, but I was waiting for him down at the old hairpin. So he catches up with me down at the old hairpin. So we then raced each other for about five laps. And they're, they're putting black flags out. They're trying to block the Because we had a complete, we'd, we'd taken the track over for the day, the Vauxhall people. Because everybody's now on the pit counter watching him and I racing the living daylights out of these Vauxhall Lotuses. So Jeff, Jeff was behind me going up through McLean's up into Coppice. Something happened and he lost it. He spun it round about and he hit everything. I went round not knowing this had happened because he disappeared out the mirrors and I just thought he'd spun on the grass. So by the time I come back around the next lap, I thought a plane had crashed at Eden Midland Airport. <laughs> there is complete and utter devastation. The back wheels are off this car, and Jeff's got his foot on the clutch, pushing a gear, trying to spin the back wheels, and all that was happening was the drive shafts were taking lumps of the bodywork off it. <laughs> we had to scoop this thing up and put it in a polythene bag and take it back to the pits. He was <laughs> not a popular boy, let me tell you. <laughs> I thought, so what's, your own, what's yeah. your own biggest shunt in the car, then? Taking the babysitter home one night. <laughs> Do tell I had, more. I, I, I had a Vauxhall um, Cavalier 4x4, and um, it was, uh, we were down at a round table dinner one night. I lived in a place called Peebles, and uh, I went into this dinner, dinner jacket, bow tie, the whole lot on, came out, and there was a foot of snow that hadn't been there when I'd gone in. And uh, I hadn't been drinking, so I was the driver that night. So we get home, and it's, it's now like the, the Arctic Circle, there's that much snow. And I said to my wife, you put the kettle on, I'll take the babysitter home. And I had no idea where she lived. And she lived in a farmyard. So I said, where is it? She said, well, if you just turn off the road here and it's up the top of the hill. So I'm now driving like a lunatic because I've got the hang of this four-wheel drive in the snow. All I see is, I'm going far too fast. All I see is a fence in front of me. And I thought, hmm. We're not going to make that. So I tried to chuck it sideways to hit the big straining fence post to kick it back on the road, which I missed. The next thing, it's rolling upside down. And um, it ended up, it rolled over a couple of times and ended up on its roof. And I said to the girl, oh, bad news. Um, 
don't take your seatbelt off because we're upside down. You'll bash your head on on this on the roof. And just literally, we, we'd only stopped. The dust couldn't even have settled in among the snow. And a torch shone in the window. And I thought, who the hell is in a field at this time of night with a torch? I wasn't in a field. I was on our front lawn. And it was our dad had heard the crashing and banging, had opened the front door to discover I brought his daughter home in an upside-down Vec Cavalier. <laughs> did she ever babysit for you again? I'll she bet she didn't. She never babysat for us ever again. Well, and blow me was, down. The worst thing was I had to phone my boss at Vauxhall the next morning and say, that new car that I just got yesterday, it's got scratches on the roof. I don't know how you got it needed a body shell, and I, I, it was the most embarrassing thing ever, taking the babysitter home. It was hellish. <laughs> Matt, a little bird told me that you once had seven shunts of various forms in one week. Someone's been a bit Is of a That's an effort. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, I got through two works vans. It was just a perfect storm, <laughs> the, way, the way it happened. Um, for a week and I ran out of cars and vans in the end. Um, it was just, yeah, I hit a dog on one and then ran in the back of someone else. And um, I did stop to see if the dog was all right. And it wasn't. Oh. Um, and it wasn't a dual carry game. <laughs> um, yeah, seven shunts, two vans and, and I think three cars. I think that's gonna be a world record, man. <laughs> Good effort, that man. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. I wasn't at the time. Mm. <laughs> What about in racing cars? Um, I, I I had quite a big one in, in Formula Renault um, in 2012. Broke my pelvis. That that one hurt quite a lot. Um, it was a bizarre accident, really. But it was um, nothing to do with me. I was minding my own business, and I got hit by a flying car, bizarrely. Um, it just cracked. They were carbon fibre tubs in the Formula Renault back then, and it, it just split it in half. And... Um, yeah, did my pelvis. So I was very lucky actually to uh, to get away with, without more serious injury. Um, <clears throat> I am actually quite amazed. I say amazed. I don't drive that quick on the road. I'll be honest with you, but um, I've never had a I've never had a crash on the road in 13 years. So we're not trying um, hard enough. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. I'm obviously um, yeah been far too sensible. But no, I've, I've actually never had a bump on the road. So touch wood. I will uh, hopefully keep that up. But yeah, I've had a. So I had a few in racing cars. You've, uh, me, me and Matt had one actually in the pit lane at Knockhill um, a couple of years ago. Um, that's that's probably the biggest accident I've had actually in a while. That was. Um, I I pressed the brake at the end of the pit lane to stop, and Matt Matt, Matt wasn't paying attention and crashed straight into the back of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must have sat in on that briefing afterwards. It was good. It was good fun. Who took the blame? I, I, I did. I've done worse. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you though, there was a mistake you made, Dan, at the very first test, wasn't there? You were you were taking the Mickey out of me earlier on about gearboxes. Would you like to tell us the Danny downshift story? <laughs> yeah, that's been sort of a running joke ever since I joined. Really, my first, obviously, I come from the uh, from the Porsche stuff for years, where on the downshift, basically, if if it if you are too high in the RPM, it, it basically won't let you shift. So I've always been protected, really. Um, the the touring car doesn't have that protection, so if you want to go down a gear, um, it will go down regardless, really, of, of uh, <laughs> whether, whether the engine really wants to or not. So you can over rev the engine. I was warned about it before I before I started, but basically, 
in the debrief, I was taught, I'm pretty sure I was told by Matt that this corner was fourth gear. Um, and I, even though I've done a lot of, even though, yeah, even though I've, you know, pretty accomplished racing driver and won multiple championships, uh, I just didn't use my own brain and decided that, yeah, if Matt says it's fourth, it's fourth. Despite the engine bouncing off the rev limiter, um, I must have done quite a few laps that day where I just kept banging it down, down that extra gear to fourth, let it rev its nuts off. And um, when I came in to stop after one of the sessions, the engine wouldn't restart again. And I was like, hmm, that seems odd. Acting all sheepish, like it's nothing to do with me, knowing full well, actually, that there's no compression left. And um, basically long story short the engine needed changing so not your not the ideal first um you know first day testing with dynamics you know meeting the lads for the first time and then being like sorry guys you've now got to change an engine but that's when Dan came out with a statement that i've never over revved an engine in my life and we got the reply well you have this time so i have i have now yeah and um did one of the mechanics turn up at the um at the autograph session with a t-shirt so yeah, it did. It did. It was brilliant. Uh, I've still got that T-shirt. It is. It is brilliant. Um, but yeah, I've not. That, that's sort of gone around with me now. It's a bit of a running joke between me and the boys. Um, obviously, they they grafted like they do, and they they got the engine. It was a bit of a nightmare because I think I was in the older spec car, and there was some. I can't remember the details about what engines were what, but I think we had to take it out of maps to put another one in maps to put it into mine. So it wasn't one engine change they had to do. It was almost like two or three, actually, to get it back running. Um, they did it like overnight. You know, this is my first impression of, you know, replacing Gordon. Um, there must How be big thinking, was your bar God, bill at that God. test? Yeah. Um, it was... <laughs> I tried to say sorry as best I could. I think I've been apologising ever since, making cups of tea <laughs> every time I get the chance. Um, but it was good fun. You know, it was we bonded over it and... Um, Danny Damage was the, the final nickname, but we were going through them. We had can damage, we had all sorts going on. You know, he, he got, the, the nicknames were coming thick and fast that night. They were, they were, I thought. And yeah, fair, fair play, I deserved it. Uh, but lesson learned. So, you know, I'm a bit, try to be a bit more gentle now. Although I do still sometimes get, get a bit of a tap on the shoulder telling me to, uh, to watch the downshift because when you're, when you're in the heat of the, uh, heat of the race, sometimes try to go forward and go back at the same time you can get a little bit quick to um, select the gear. If push came to shove, could any of you actually dial yourselves in with the spanner in your hands and do something useful to help the boys? Yes. I can. Yay! <laughs> but I come from a slightly older school of, of, uh, of that, so I, I, I don't pretend to be an Andy Rose where, you know, I, Andy Rose would come rushing into pits and say, give it two clicks here and take a bit of this off it and a bit of that off it. I get paid to drive, not to um, to engineer the car. But I do know what makes it work and what makes it work well. But I could actually get my hands dirty with the spanners if I had to. Yeah. Have you ever? Uh, a long <laughs> time, a long time ago, a long time ago. Now, now the most I do is repair my tractor at weekends. What about you, Dad or Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I. I was a, a mechanic in, in karting for a, a couple of years, sort of just after I'd stopped racing karts. Um, and I used to work for um, a guy called Steve Ogden that builds a lot of the kart racing engines in the UK. So I was there for four years, I think, building racing engines. So I have some experience. But then again, you know, when it comes to our race car, there's, there's no way I would ever dream of it. You know, I'll happily make a cup of tea and try and keep morale up late at night. 
but um, I won't be one to, to, to pick up a spanner purely because they can do it better than me, faster than me. And while they're telling me how to do it, they could have done it themselves, to be honest. Um, so no, I, I'm more I'm more there for support than I am actual uh, use picking spanners up. Your boys race, Matt. Have you ever spanned on their cars? Yeah, I've helped. But I, as Dan says, you know, I, I grew up with, with bikes and I used to span on my own bikes, take them to the race meetings, prep them, run them and all the rest of it and reprep them. Um, but you just get in the way. You know, I, I know roughly what makes them tick, but a good engineer, as, as John mentioned, they work things out mathematically rather than practically as, as sort of we would. Because um, sometimes, you know, some of the real clever engineers, they'll put a setting on the car, they'll go, right, we're going this route, which you just think, that's the last thing I want to do. But it, for whatever reason, mathematically, it works. Yeah. Um, and so, and then you've got the engineering side and you've got the, the, the mechanic side. They are, the boys now, like at Dynamics, they were furloughed for, for two months, but Dynamics kept on 100% pay because they didn't want to lose any, any of them because they're all very skilled people. And, um, you know, the people behind the organization and what makes it go well. Mm, yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, what, what John said about, you know, Andy Rouse being a driver who, very much like to almost engineer his own car. Um, I, I'm not that. And I, I have raised people that are like that. And like John said, I, he, um, he's, he's the driver, not the engineer. And I kind of, I'm the same really. Um, know, how, know, how, know how it works and, and what might be, we need to look at changing. But it's, it's my job to say if it understeers or oversteers, not to say this is how I think we should fix it because um, you know, the engineers have got their own ideas and you've got to let them come, come to it as well. Get engineering, spannering. If you were a designer, what would be the one thing? And, you, and go as wild as you like here. What would be the one thing that you would love to have on a road car that you, nobody actually has on a road car? I don't know, pizza oven or maybe not pizza oven. But you know what I mean? A big set of bumpers to get these lunatics to sit on the outside lane out of the way. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and the middle lane. Can we have some on the side for bashing the people out the middle lane as well? Yeah, They're yeah, the ones that, that do my head <laughs> For me, it's autonomous. I love the auto autonomy. If I'm not a, I don't relish, I love driving. Yeah, driving's been my life and cars have been my life and everything. But in, say, the UK, the roads are so busy and everything. It is a nose. Mm -hmm. I'd rather sit in the, in the back of the passenger seat and be driven. If you can do that with autonomy, then, then bring it on. As long so as many racing drivers don't like driving on the road, in my experience. Often. No, that's true. I mean, I, I went to a book festival here in Melrose one night david coulter was there um pushing his new book and and he openly said that night on the forum um he hates driving he absolutely does not drive on the main road he never has done for years and years and years he hates it um so there's a lot of racing drivers i'm sure that just spend their life flying around the world and not sitting in traffic jams but unfortunately if you compete in the uk you have to drive matt you know from here at Pembrey or here at Snetterton or whatever the heck it is. And you guys coming up to Knock Hill, I don't know whether you drive up here or whether you fly up here, but it's still, it's a long way, you know? It is. It is. Like a lot of the Honda BSB, you know, the Honda BSB riders, the Owen boys, and them, they haven't got bike licenses on the road. And a lot of bike racers haven't. It's the same deal. And you go, and because I've got a bike license and I love bikes, but for me, I, and I love bikes on the road, and I go to them, you don't ride a bike on the road? No, no, no chance, no. I actually, um, I actually recently did my bike test a couple of months ago with uh, my, 
uh, you know, my CBT test with, with Andrew Irwin and Tom Neve, who are two of the Honda BSB boys. Um, both ride super bikes, but don't have a license. Uh, it was probably the most bizarre CBT you've ever been on because within about the first five minutes, they were already doing wheelies and, and endos down the car park. Uh, well, I'm just trying to figure out how to use a clutch. Um, so yeah, it was good fun. Um, I think the, even the, uh, the guy taking the course, uh, the instructor said it was, it was probably the best he's ever done because we were, obviously they pick it, but they'd had nothing, nothing to pick up. It was far below their level, but um, I picked it up quite quick actually. So we were, we were sort of drafting each other down the country lanes, stuck at 60 miles an hour um, while the Honda PR team tried to film it and keep up. So we had a really good day out that day. But did they manage to do a U-turn without putting their foot down at any point? I think, I think they could, I think they were far beyond that. <laughs> did you? Were, um, that was a tricky I, bit when I did mine. That was a really tricky bit. I did. I did find it tough. I'll tell you what I did find tough. Um, and anybody who knows me knows that I struggle when it comes to turning off on and off switches and stuff like that. Um, bike, bike indicators don't self cancel. So I would drive around for ages with my indicator stuck on. Um, all you ever heard of the intercom was turn your indicator off. So, oh yeah. Crap. Next roundabout, turn your indicator off. Oh yeah, crap. <laughs> Just, yeah. So I'd be a danger, I think, on the road. What would your dream drive be if you could um, have, obviously, Matt, for you, a very comfortable car. John, for you, a comfortable car. Well, actually, you all wanted a comfortable car, didn't you? So you got your comfortable car. Where are you going to drive it? Anywhere in the world? What would be uh, the route that you pick? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, not yeah. to Scotland. Why not? <laughs> Why not? There's up there. <laughs> you can't deny that one, John. I'm sorry. We've all been there's watching a, weather forecast lately. It does think, always rain up. There's a, think, there's a road up here. It's, what is it? The, 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 the North 500 or Northwest 500, whatever they call it. And it goes up the west coast of Scotland along the top, John O'Groats and all of that. And, I mean, it's beautiful. Be absolutely beautiful views and fantastic roads. But... It's about 10 degrees less than anywhere else on the planet in terms of temperature. It rains a lot, and the midges are the size of um, sparrows. So, it's, you know, you don't, you don't get out of the car. I must admit, when I, Flash is, sometimes I used to stop at Flash's house when we were up at Knock Hill, and he lives 20 miles from the circuit and the, in Octorider, and the, the scenery there, driving and, and you know the stone walls and everything, is just it, it's, it's iconic up there. Yeah, definitely. Where are you going, Dan? It's a good question, actually. Um, Yorkshire, nice roads Yorkshire. in Yorkshire. There is there is some there is some nice roads in Yorkshire, actually. Um, yeah, the ones in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that head north. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I don't know, actually. I think there's, um, my parents have a, have a, a place, a, a static caravan in the south of France. So uh, it's actually my plan to drive down there, I think, uh, at some point, hopefully in the next few weeks before we start racing. Um, so maybe I'll find some good roads on the way. I'll need to research, actually, because I'm sure there is some good driving roads as you head south through France that you can pick up and uh, have a bit of fun. They're very empty. I've driven down to Monaco on a couple of occasions and it, it's sort of, you've got loads of stuff at the top. But when you get to that, there's a vast swathe of the middle of France that there's really nothing happening in it. So well, that, sounds pretty good. that sounds pretty good because there's too much happening over here. So Sounds like your kind of road. Exactly. Uh, who are you going to have as your dream passenger in your dream car on your dream journey? Don't just say your girlfriend. Well, she's 
still looking at me. So who else do I want me to say? <laughs> Outside of your girlfriend and and Matt, your wife in your case. Ooh, don't know. Somebody else go. Let me think. Doesn't it? It's got to be with the with the lads for a road trip. Yeah, for I me, I think I would I would have Nicola Sturgeon because I'm going to beat the living daylights out of verbally for what she's doing up here at the minute. <laughs> Put it on the roof in her garden, John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only trouble is, Matt, I'm not having a babysit for me. That's not happening. <laughs> Actually, Lou, what, what I love about having John, John on is back in the day, you were allowed to get away with more mischief, and he was one of the crew with Will Hoy and co. That they used to really rip it out of Alan at every opportunity. And I love hearing some of John's stories because... Alan, Alan is there and he's, we can't touch him these days. He's got too powerful. <laughs> they did used to have his life on a few occasions, which were incredibly funny. Yeah, I mean, we so simple little things like he used, you know what Alan's like? He does like to be perfect with things, the right watch and the right car and the right shoes and all that. Well, at Branch Hatch at the time, the, the, the course car, or Alan's car, was a Saab convertible turbo or something. And we got uh, four space savers for it put them on it while the driver's briefing was going on. And then he was going to go out and lead the pack of cars with the drivers up through waving to the crowd, which was what they used to do then. And of course, Alan comes out the tent, the Toka tent, only to discover that his Saab is sitting on bicycle wheels and tires. And he lost his sense of humor completely that day. He knew who was behind it. And I think I ended up on the Weybridge about 40 times again. That was his way of getting back at you. If you did something to him, he'd fire you on the Weybridge every time. But uh, we John, used... which was which he more upset about that than or than about his credit card at the bar? Uh, the, the, the credit card story was we were at um, Ulton Park and there was a squad of us. I was a really really big crew of people, and we were at a really fancy hotel. And at the time, I had the GM card credit card down the side of my car, and uh, after dinner. Alan got up to go outside for a smoke, left his wallet in his jacket. So I helped myself to his credit card. I said, right, guys, I'll pay for dinner tonight uh, because I've got some credits on my GM card. And Gow said, no, 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 it's okay. I'll, no, no, Alan, trust me. Let me get this, please. And it was before the days of PIN numbers. So I went out, gave the credit card, and I was busy signing Alan Gow on the slip when he came up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, John, you need to let me give you a couple of hundred quid of cash. I can't have you pay that. And that was a mistake. I didn't take his cash as well. I can't believe that. So I, what I did was I signed it, I got back. We then went downstairs to play pool and we got the card back in his wallet without him knowing. So a fortnight later when the credit card statement came in, he phoned me here in the office and he swore for 20 minutes and never repeated himself once. <laughs> I'd never heard some of the words before. <laughs> and I said, Alan, it was only eight or 900 quid. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and he said, no, I don't want the money back. He said, I'll get even with you. And he did. Well, it took about two years, but he got even with me. <laughs> but he was I always could, fun. I could listen to your stories all day. I, I really could. So many of them. I could listen to all of your stories all day, but unfortunately, we've just about come to the end of our time. Thank you so much, John, for, for coming on board. Oh, my pleasure. Can I, just um, say, can I just say good luck to these two guys? When it starts, 
Um, I, I know it must be really difficult for you sitting there waiting for the whole thing to go. But listen, best of luck, guys, when the time comes. Have a great season. Cheers, John. Thanks, John. Yeah, well, before that, Matt and, and uh, Dan and I are going to be back with another special very guest, special very guest, very special guest even, um, on the, the next episode of Grid Walk Talk. So we hope that you will join us again for that. But for now, it's bye-bye from all of us. Bye.